This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Body Talk. And this week is kind of different. I'm being interviewed. Yes, a new friend of the show, Rachel Gross. She's a science writer. You may have heard her the previous episode talking about her new book, Vagina Obscura. She said, hey, how about if we do this again, but this time I interview you. So we're going to talk about fascia. We're going to talk about practice. We're going to talk about uh, visceral manipulation and how the reproductive system can play into musculoskeletal and pelvic pain. We're going to talk about interfacing with physicians. We're going to talk about all sorts of things. Anyway, it's a little bit different for me, and I hope you're all going to enjoy it. As always, you can leave me feedback on social media, DM me. You can send uh, an email to bodytalkdavid at gmail.com. And hey, while you're at it, leave a review wherever you get your podcast. Give it five stars. Write a couple of sentences. It all really makes a difference. And if you want to support the show more, there's always patreon.com backslash bodytalkradio. Let's get right to it with me. Hi, I'm Rachel Gross. I'm a science journalist and an author of the book Vagina Obscura, an Anatomical Voyage. And I'm taking over David Lasondek's podcast this week, Body Talk, because I was interviewed by him and was so excited to hear more about his practice. Uh, so as you probably know, David is an author, a clinician in body work, and a fascia specialist. And his practice is at the University of Pittsburgh's Center for Integrative Medicine. And he's also working on the second edition of his super engaging book, Fascia, What It Is and Why It Matters. How are you today, David? I'm doing great, Rachel. This is really cool to have you here doing this. It's a little surreal, but, but, but I'm up for it. Let's go. Thanks for letting me turn the tables on you. You are super open. And last time I just remember talking a lot and then being like, I wish I had asked David more questions. I was super fascinated by your work because in my work, I interview a lot of researchers whose work is kind of abstract and the theoretical. And yours is literally very hands-on. You work with the body in, it, in the flesh every day and your knowledge seems such more like embodied and visceral. Um, and I was hoping to ask, how did fascia become such a big part of your practice? It was a natural evolution. Uh, when I started back in the 1990s as a clinically oriented massage therapist, um, over time, your fingers, your hands, your tools, and those are my tools. I don't use, you know, scrapers or, or Graston tools or things, but, but your hands develop more and more sensitivity to what you're feeling under the surface. And the better your anatomical knowledge about what it looks like under the surface, it, it can be even more sophisticated. But I just began feeling and working with textures and tensions that were beyond what I was used to. And it was, it was utterly fascinating to me uh, when I would I'm going to say fall into these states with a client, with a patient. Um, and, and they would seem to get an amazing result. And I would be like, what was that? 
And then I had somebody who was very skilled in fascial bodywork techniques do something like that to me. And it was like, oh my God, this is what I need for my body. This is what I need to go learn as soon as possible. And I kind of think I'm doing this, but I don't know exactly what it is I'm doing. And it was just like these three metanoias um, <laughs> at once. Uh, actually, I was going for brain fireworks. I'm not sure where metanoias came from. But uh, but yeah, it was I'll just, it, it was a tripartite realization. Oh, uh, <laughs> and I needed to move in this direction. This was like in the early 2000s. I was wondering, I had never really, I'd heard of fascia in my reporting, but didn't know much about it. At the time that you had that realization, was it pretty well known in the body work world? I know it's kind of just beginning to catch on with other health professionals now. Yeah, it was still pretty obscure. Uh, I had one great clinical teacher who we would, um, you know, basically it was like, let's study the anatomy, let's study a half a dozen different approaches to this area of the neck or the shoulder or what have you. And he folded fascial techniques in there. We're talking like real early 90s. And he said, but there are many people who do these techniques and there are many people who do them actually well. That had been my introduction to such things. So within the realm of body work known uh, generically as structural integration, uh, it's very well known. And then you've got other brands like John Barnes Myofascial Release and other things like that. And the myo in myofascial just refers to muscle fascia because you also have uh, visceral fascia, nerve fascia, um, and the periosteum, the covering around the bone, is fascial also. But from a perspective of a fasciologist, um, it's all, it's all, it's, yeah, it's all one thing. It's all one tissue. It's all one system, even though it has many layers and attributes. You know, you don't say, how many skin do I have? You have one skin. <laughs> yeah, this is exactly what fascinated me when I was reading your book and talking to you about this last time. I was trying to understand the concept of fascia as a layperson. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, all right, it's got all these layers. It's got nerves and small blood vessels. Um, it kind of reminded me of like laminated croissant dough because it's got like the kind of viscous liquid in between that helps it mm -hmm. be smooth and slippery. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But the way that you describe it is like this big structural system that spans the whole body. And I think that's really interesting. Did you kind of come to that understanding? Uh, well, it's, it's sort of become the default understanding uh, by, the, by the people who are most intimately involved with it, both on a research or practical level. I, I had the good fortune to kind of get my foot uh, in the door of the lobby while they were still deciding on what kind of tile they were going to put on the floor. So <laughs> I really got to be exposed to and like grabbed on for dear life with the most forward thinking people, both in research and in practice. So I kind of got in on the express train uh, when the, the research was, was just like really, really blowing up managed to leverage some of my prior media skills to documenting a lot of this research. So I just kind of just like osmosis, I just like sucked it all up because I wanted to know I, you know, in, in my prior life, I had a reputation for getting 
good, consistent results to help people get out of pain. And what I want to know is why does this approach work so much better than everything else I've ever learned? Right. And I needed to understand why. And you know how it is, you just go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper with something like that, particularly if you're in the middle of Science Central. Right. That's so interesting that the kind of trigger for this realization was your work with patients in your practice, not like some theoretical idea that you wanted or question you wanted to answer. It kind of answered the old uh, new age cliche of uh, it's all connected, but in a way that you could actually work with. You know, if if I'm working as, as happened the other day, uh, on somebody's heel uh, and ankle, and they're feeling something in the opposite hip, but the the, patho- the visual pathology of the foot and ankle presents in a way that indicates a correlation between those two things. You know, it's easy to say, oh, well, that's because it's all connected, but you, you don't know anything when you say that. But if you understand how the signaling works in the sensory nervous system, and you understand fascial compensation patterns, uh, then you can begin to come up with a hypothesis of why that might occur. Uh, and yes, are we going to address the the left hip in question? Sure. But we're also going to work on that right heel and foot because there's there's a relationship between those two things. That's the beauty and the challenge of working with a fascial system is understanding the anatomy and physiology well enough to be able to make these correlations and do a much more effective treatment. Now, I could have just worked on this person's left hip. They would have left feeling much better and probably come back a week later saying, well, it's better, but it came back. Now that we've done both of those things, they'll come back in two weeks and say, hey, you know what? I had a pretty good 10 days. Now we just need to fine tune it. And that's pretty much what I expect to happen. Wow. Yes, I was totally going to bring up your email signature and sign off. Um, Always connect. It's another thing I connected with. um, No pun intended. Sorry. Um, It's a punny show. We're good. (laughs) Oh, good. Then I'm welcome here. Um, Very. I, in my research, I looked at um, all the quote unquote reproductive organs, um, which are often seen as kind of individual or fragmented and only being important during childbirth. And I came to think of them as a very interconnected whole that's really integrated with the whole body. Another connection with that is these organs, the reproductive ones, um, were also seen as kind of passive and not important during other times. So, so these are like organs that have been historically overlooked and understudied and often called passive. And I read that fascia also was considered kind of this passive system that just transmitted. You know, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, there's, there, there's a really interesting simultaneity there between your work and and what I've been doing, but yes, it was, uh, as Robert Schleip would call it a packing organ. So it was just, it was the peanuts. It was the peanuts, the styrofoam peanuts in the box from Amazon. I don't care about the peanuts. I want the thing in the box. And exactly. That's kind of the way the body was looked at for years. This is the stuff in the way of the sexy things like the liver and the gastrocnemius and mm. and the anterior cruciate ligament. That's the cool stuff. That's where the action is happening. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was so I was wondering why do you think it was underrated and how did we get out of that thinking? Well, like everything else, there's always outliers. Uh, who are looking at the things that nobody else is looking at, saying there must be a reason for this. And uh, I highlighted some of those outliers uh, in chapter three of my book, uh, Mm -hmm. going back 
a number of centuries ago. So that stream of thought was always there. Why it was ignored, I'm not entirely sure. I'm okay, so I'm trying to put myself in the mind of early physicians and and maybe somebody somebody like Vesalius who 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 is very very uh, responsible for the the Vesalian principle as it's sometimes referred to, is that what we think biases what we see. So you know you need to look at it and think, oh, how does this work? So I'm trying to put myself in his mind and saying, okay, why didn't he see these things? Or, you know, I allude in, again, in chapter three, that there's ways he did his drawings that indicate that maybe he did see these things, but they didn't, they didn't translate into something meaningful at the time. Um, and of course, we're talking about working with uh, fresh cadavers here. Um, now, in what I can- the fascia would be, um, would be visible and- it, it would be visible. It it it's it's gooey, as my friend Rochelle likes to say. Fascia is it strapping tape or magic goo? Uh, and it's it's actually kind of both. If you dissect something freshly euthanized, which I had the opportunity to do with a rat still warm, you, you can actually peel up the more superficial layers of the fascia, and it's like a string of bubbles or goo or spit. Whoa, right. So it, like, I don't want to get gross, but is that like when you have a raw chicken, like, can't you kind of see these structures? Um, you can see remnants of those tissues. Yeah. In a raw chicken that that's kind of translucenty stuff. Exactly. Um, uh, hunters who dress their own game call it the silver skin because you get through the skin and then there's a silver skin and then there's the meat. Wow. I mean, okay. it kind of makes sense to me when you put it that way, how an anatomist at that time would think of it as the packaging, not the main yeah and idea. i think uh, preserving techniques made this really preserve that bias uh and i used i used to work at a funeral home for about 18 months Whoa. so yeah that's another one of my past lives and the preservatives destroy the fascia as far as i'm concerned uh you wow. can do fascia sparing dissections that can show the continuities and the links from area to area but in a typical preservation there are other preservation techniques that are less destructive it's like yellowy greasy gloopy pasta in clotheslines it's really unappealing and oh um yeah and, and yeah so it, it just seems like it, it just doesn't seem like anything of interest so we can just chuck that in the wastebasket with the skin and the fat but let's save the liver and tag it and be sure it goes back with the body for burial because that's an important you know that's one of the big pieces we want to save that right um, so so it engenders and and i've run into this uh, we're going to call it an unconscious anatomical bias with mm -hmm. people in uh, academia and biomedicine because of that training that just the the implication that this could have more of a function than just a packing organ, there's an initial resistance to that can be really, really strong because it just, well, I think I'd kind of know if it was important. You know? Right. Somebody um, because, would have figured that out by now. Yeah, right. Yeah. We wouldn't have just thrown it away. Uh, that's changing. That's changed a lot over 20 years because we've had some really, you know, high level people. Carla Stecco comes to mind, orthopedic surgeon from Italy, is chair of the anatomy department at Padua. So we went from Vesalius to Carla Stecco in 500 wow. years, and she did the first medical anatomical atlas of the fascial system with yes. her eye for detail and her orthopedic background. So things like that just keep upping the game. Right. It's spreading throughout other fields. Actually, that 
makes me think of one more piece from my book, which was when I looked at egg cells in the ovaries, they're Mm -hmm. all surrounded by granulosa cells, which are like the hormone producing ones. Mm -hmm. And historically they were just called like nurse cells or companion cells. And they were considered kind of the part that didn't matter, like exactly what you're saying, um, that they're just there to nurture the egg because the egg is the big deal. That's the cell we care about, the cell with the potential to bring forth like all life. But actually Mm -hmm. it turned out the granulosas were super essential. They were of course producing hormones, which were critical to the whole body and also like part of this brain ovary hypothalamus loop of hormones that is like this feedback loop um Mm -hmm. so i thought it was funny like i read about early ivf researchers and how they would just pluck the granulosas off the egg to get to the important part but like that is changing and now we see them as partners that are both integral and maybe the fascia and the organs is kind of similar And it's the same thing in the glial system in the brain, which is just one of my favorite little nerd niches to to pay attention to is glial research. And we go back to that. It was the same thing with the glia in the neurons. The glia outnumbered the neurons, but they were much smaller. The neurons were bigger. So they must be more important because they're bigger. These were guys, right? So we're doing the size thing. Yeah. Even back (laughs) in the early days of neuroscience, guys in size. So the neurons kind of got all the the spotlight and it wasn't until 2004 that it was discovered that the glia communicate and influence neuronal behaviors through chemical messages, not electrical ones. Oh, that's so similar. Yeah. It's very similar. It's very similar. Hey, let's... (laughs) Let's take the metaphor another another step larger. So how about when we all locked down a couple of years ago and realized how dependent we were on people who work in grocery stores and drive trucks and pick up our garbage and all these support things that we just do and pay for and don't think about that suddenly became vital in getting by day to day. So it's the same thing with the glia in the brain. Or, or it was always vital. We just the, the granulosis in the egg cell. We, you know, there's no every part is dependent on every other part. Always connect. Always connect. I wanted to ask, like, when you're in the clinic, the office with a patient, mm-hmm. um, and you are working on something like heel pain, would that be plantar fasciitis? It could be plantar fasciitis. Doesn't have to be something else. How mm-hmm. do you make that connection with the left hip, and how do you figure out the relationship with some other part of the body? it varies from person to person. That's just a fresh example because it happened the other day. What happens is after I do an inventory of what's going on with the person, what problems are coming in for, what other things about their body or themselves aren't working the way they wish they were, aren't as optimal as they could be. Uh, and accidents, injuries, surgeries, you know, is as like a complete, as complete a physical medical history as possible. And then there comes what is in some circles referred to as pathoanatomical analysis or body reading or postural Ooh. observation. But basically I want to look at somebody in, in their underwear in a pair of shorts, in a halter top, something like that, where I can look at all the different bony landmarks. Is the acromion, the little little peak that sticks out at the top of the shoulder blade, is the acromion even on both sides? 
from the front? Is one higher, one lower? If I turn them on the side, where is that acromion relevant to the position of the bottom of the earlobe? And how's that relating to the greater trochanter in the leg? So from the front, the back, the side, and also in rotations and spirals, I make an inventory of the anomalies, the places where the bones aren't as in an alignment as they could be for optimal performance. Yeah. And again, that's relative too. So let's just say hypothetically that I am working on a professional baseball pitcher who's throwing 100, 110 mile an hour fastballs. That's a lot of force transmission in one way, in one direction from his right shoulder to his left hip, translating through his spine. He is going to have a different topographical presentation than a left-handed baseball pitcher doing the same thing because the forces he's doing through his body every day are going to shape his body over time. So that's where it can get more sophisticated because you have to realize, okay, what does this person do? What's, what's their function in life? And how has that impacted what I'm seeing beyond the anatomical standard of perfection? And you have to kind of go somewhere in between. Yeah, there's so much natural variation. And like there you said- is behaviors shape our bodies. And then I try to create a story, a, a hypothesis. So I look at where all the places where things don't add up. Mm. And it's like, okay, you have uh, this thing, this thing, and this thing uh, going on that you came in for. Or maybe it's just one thing. And here's the places in your body that don't add up or seem to me to indicate where these two things come together. You know, your pain story, your performance issue, your I don't like the way this feels in my body versus what I see that's off kilter where there's a correlation. And from there, I strategize interventions. There's default modes. There are standard by the book protocols for this, like there are for everything else. But I find the best thing to do is to blend, to give people a mix of what they need right now with trying to establish a firm foundation for sustainability. So they come in as long as they need to not because they have to. Mm. So there's an end where like, okay, you're done. Come back in six months for a checkup. I think it's so interesting, the kind of phrases you use, like body reading and pain story. That's like, you know, you are reading the body as a text. Um, mm -hmm. But then the the other word you used, topographical, um, was super interesting because the way you were describing it made me think of, it really is a landscape that yeah. you are surveying. Mm -hmm. But then part of, your work is not just like the visual surveying, right? It's very visceral. You are also like, like feeling those textures and like the organs beneath the skin and stuff. Uh, well, when we get to the actual treatment part, yeah, there are, there are differences that you can palpate. Yeah. And, and the, one of the most fascinating studies I've come across in the last few years showed with a 71% positive people were able to differentiate through touch the difference in one molecular layer of thickness. What? Yeah. That sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy, but this lab, it's a haptics lab, and they, they created a, a neutral substance because, you know, wood, wood gives off a different thermal signature than ceramics, than glass. So part of when you touch something is how much heat or not heat is it giving off? That's part of how you register what... Oh what it is. So what they did is, okay, let's create a, let's, cre let's, let's pick a synthetic substance that we can be consistent with. And let's make three strips of it. One strip will be one molecular layer thicker. Oh. 
and then let's put it on a dish and give it to people and say, here, one of these is different than the other two. Tell us which one. It's like the anatomical princess and the pea. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. And, and they found a 71% accuracy rating on just people off the street. This was not like body workers or chiropractors or anything like that. And, and there's Darren Lapome who runs that lab saying, you know, it's not just the mechanoreceptors in the fingers, it's in the wrist and in the elbow and in the shoulder and the, yeah, that it's, that it's this loop that gives you this tactile information. And because our sense of touch is the oldest evolutionarily speaking, Again, we kind of like, well, come on, it's not nearly as sexy as vision. It's not that, you know. That's just great. I love touch. Yeah, right. And it's also the one, because it is the oldest, that has the most opportunity to be refined. Hmm. You know, single, single cellular organisms. How did, well, how did they get around? They felt things. We evolved yeah. from those single cellular organisms who felt things. And then vision and all those other stuff came later. Right. And every part of the body has such a different capacity for like sensation and touch, right? It, it mean, does. And it varies and, and it varies from person to person. It varies from condition to condition. Often areas that hurt are more sensitive to touch. So you have to approach them differently than the areas near them, which may be strained, but are more conducive to being touched. So wow. that's, that's another thing. So if you start from the periphery and work towards the epicenter, which is my value. You're going to get a better result that if you go there and they kind of scream and twitch like a fish and then they feel better, but you jacked up their nervous system. Not a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the other thing that I was like, Ooh, I want to know more about this. Um, is, you know, obviously I focus on the reproductive organs. I was curious how the reproductive organs show up in your work. Are they often a source of pain or something that you can do fascial work or massage on um, if there are conditions like endometriosis or fibroids that are causing pain? Sometimes the pain can be alleviated, but sometimes those conditions are beyond my ability to affect appropriate change. I, I have one patient now who is uh, undergoing, let's just call it a fibroidectomy. Let's think about it this way. So from there's the functions of the organs, there's the digestion of food, there's the elimination of food, there's all the things that go on in the reproductive organs, so on and so forth. That takes place in a physical space. It takes place in a container that has a pressure system. Every one of those organs is coated with and interpenetrated with fascia and connective tissue. They also have ligaments. Your liver, for example, has three ligaments and they act like de facto joints for the liver so that when you move, your liver moves with you to a much more limited degree, obviously, than your elbow or your fingers. Otherwise, bending over would be really uncomfortable if your organs didn't move or they were just stuck there. Now, because of the way we use our bodies, because of the way we compress our bodies because of accidents and injuries and surgeries that happen, just like musculoskeletal fascia, the visceral fascia can thicken. it can develop densifications, it, in the case of incisions, develop uh, what I'm calling adhesions that some people say don't exist, but adhesions are basically where layers are stuck together rather than sliding. It's just that simple. And when you're working viscerally, you can create changes in them. I have one person who 
when we do certain procedures always says, oh, I'm going to have a good poop this afternoon. Um, <laughs> and no, that's great. You want that. You want that shit out of there. You know what I'm saying? And oh, that happens God. sometimes, you know, stress-induced constipation. You know, it could just throw you off for a oh, day yeah. or two. I'm not talking about chronic conditions. There was somebody I was treating for a small bowel obstruction. And basically the surgeon said, I don't want to see this person in the ER all the time. So what can you do to kind of help keep them more regular? And we were able to do that through, keep fascia. The ER for, through, through visceral manipulation, which is a subset of fascia work. It, it's all working through, working with and through that system. Now, when you're getting into things like fibroids or endometriosis, that involves other complicating factors that are right, a little right. bit beyond my scope of practice. However, for general pelvic pain, pain during intercourse, for example, there are effective things you can do by finding where are things moving and sliding? Where are things stuck? Where does it feel like there's too much pressure in the abdomen? And what can I do to change that relationship, make things, make to alleviate the pressure and get things moving more appropriately? And then what are the results? And often there are good results. So in the case of you know, you mentioned fibroids, I can help manage the pain. Uh, but that's not necessarily if it's a severe situation going to make the fibroids go away through magic. No, yeah, I didn't mean to. Um, yeah, no, 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 I didn't think you either. did. I just wanted yeah. to be clear to anybody listening, you know, because we all we all want the magic cure, we all want the magic cure. And sometimes we get it, but sometimes we don't. Right, right. And yeah, those are complex chronic conditions. Um, but pelvic pain is a good example. Um, I also think of vulvodynia. I'm just curious, yeah, like, what, I, is the fascia changing in those conditions? What does it do around those organs? Mm -hmm. I'm hesitating because having treated a few of those conditions, again, it varies. And it's not like, it's not like I do an ultrasound and I can say, Wow, um, the there 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 is a there's a, a difference in the thickness uh, of this uh, uterine ligament versus the one on the left side, and the one on the side that you have the pain is much thicker than the one on the left. You know, I don't have access to to being that. It could be done with a really good ultrasound person. You could image and figure those things out. So I'm going again more by sense of touch and what we call motility. So motility is the natural movement of the organ. A simpler way to, to wrap your head around it, there, there's a valve uh, basically that connects the large intestine to the small intestine. It has, a, it has a palpable rhythm to it if you know how to find it and how to feel for it. That's a place that often uh, the rhythm gets kind of slow when there are digestive issues going on. With something like vulvodynia, there's the bladder, there's the uterus. Are they, are they sliding or do they feel stuck? There's the psoas muscle, which runs along either side of the spine anteriorly, which can also, which, which is right in the middle of all of that. And is that gliding and sliding appropriately? Sometimes just doing some really good releases on the psoas and showing people like what to do at home to keep that muscle relaxed. It's a big flexor of the hip uh, that a lot of people don't think about. Just that alone can make a huge difference for those kinds of issues. Wow. It's so interesting when you talk about um, vulvodynia and pelvic pain, because those are two conditions that like are, have often been 
dismissed as psychological because like you said it's complex it varies it's hard to find exactly what's going on even if you have an ultrasound and yeah. it's interesting to me that fascia could be playing a role yeah. I, there's a story i want to share with you and yeah. uh, i'm sure the patient will be okay with it some people are more sensitive than others okay and i and 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 i mean that just on a purely physical level some people yeah it, it and you have to know that so how how i work on a 300 pound power lifter is not going to be on how how i work on a 98 pound gymnast uh and actually i might have to you know and, and it's not saying that the i'm gonna have to use a lot more force and pressure on the 300 pound weightlifter, but but it's probably likely that i would and most people are not in those extremes but I, I had a patient once who came into me with pelvic pain issues and they were, you mentioned princess in the pea earlier, and it was that kind of situation. And, and they were very upfront about the fact that they had a tendency to, to have a strong reaction to work. And I've talked about palpation and there's, when you're, when your hands are on and you're working with the tissue there is in working with is the important thing here. There is a feel that it has that you're either going with it or you can actually feel the body start reacting against what you're doing. When you feel that reaction against, that's a sign that you shouldn't do that right now or you should find a different way to do that because otherwise you're going to force, you're going to impose and that can lead to accidents, mistakes or well, I felt better, but I was so sore for two days. I could hardly get out of bed. Yeah. Nobody wants that. That's not good therapy. Yeah, you got to work with so, the body. Right. right. You got to work with the body. So, you know, I might have four different ways of treating that one area and the way I pick just isn't working for you. So let's try a different approach, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So she was very upfront about how she had not had a good reaction to other people. So she was like wanting me to know to like really dial it back. Now I got to tell you the, the relative sponginess of the tissue belied her response. So like I like, so, so I can remember very distinctly my uh, fingers in her neck going towards the, towards the back of the skull, the occipital ridge mm -hmm. and feel like, wow, this tissue just wants to move. But she's telling me that, you know, she has this reaction and I can feel like further up from my fingers where the stuck place is. You want to call it a trigger point. You want to call it a densification. You want to, but it's a, it's, it's a stuck place. And I know I could go right up in there, but I know that what she's told me, it's probably not going to be good for her a few hours later if I do that. So I'm just going to let it relax. I'm just, I'm just yeah. going to get really Zen here and I'm going to wait for it to come to me. You know, I'm just going to yeah. go just, I'm going to pull back a little bit and wait for it to come to me. That's the only way I can explain it. And you know what? She started having really good responses across the board because her expectations were, I want to get better. And I don't care if you spend 15 minutes in one place, you know, that's just how my body is. Okay. Then that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to turn off the part of my brain. That's like, dude, you need to get to the next thing. Come on. It was only an hour. So I met her where she was at. Right. And as we worked together and I saw things clear up and I found out she had an IUD and I looked at how she responded to things and I went, hmm. and what? I said, did you ever think about removing the IUD and seeing what happens to your pelvic pain and your vulvodynia because of your pattern everywhere else in your body? It'd be worth trying to see what results you got, don't you think? And she did. 
and it completely changed for okay, the positive. That's, that's wild. I thought so that would blow your mind. You have to have like a certain level of trust and comfort to suggest that someone might want to remove their IUD since that's a big <laughs> personal decision for them. Well, um, you know, you develop a therapeutic trust and comfort. I, I work in a hospital. People expect a certain amount of directness in that environment. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying you need to do this. I'm saying, you know, it might be something you might want to try and, and see what response you get. See if you get a positive response from that. You know, and if you don't, then we know it's something else. But if you do, but given, you know, given what I know about how your body responds to things, it's a foreign object that is creating a sustained pressure and you don't seem to do well with that. That is so interesting. I was just going to say, like, I'm trying to picture how anatomically an IUD might be affecting the tissues around it. I know you can get inflammation sometimes, Mm -hmm. um, but pressure because it's going through the cervix which is like a, a muscular donut yeah interesting um the other thing i'm noticing is um like we're talking about pelvic pain vulvodynia and um you make it sound very like kind of physical and concrete you're talking about organs sliding next to each other and like where you can feel the densification um and it makes me think of other chronic illnesses that haven't always been considered biological and physical. Um, and I know you focus on chronic pain. So things like chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, like how has the change in attitudes towards those kind of conditions to see them as more biological and take them seriously, has that affected your fascia work or vice versa? Affected it in what way? would you get more patients coming in with that condition who say like, I think there's something physical going on that you could help me with? These are conditions that I've been seeing since the early 2000s to varying degrees of success. There's also, frankly, there is uh, in, in the world of what I refer to as spreadsheet medicine, there is, uh, there's a lot of fibromyalgia specialty clinics, you know, and they could either look at me as a friend or as competition. If they look at me from a business standpoint as a friend, we're going to get along great because there will be some of your people I can help. There will be some that I can't, particularly, you know, fibromyalgia can be so depleting. And and I think there's a difference um, between fibromyalgia and what's now being reclassified as myofascial pain or myofascial pain syndrome. Okay. And in the, in the protocols, the parameters for identifying fibromyalgia, they're all over the place in terms of what, what, what's considered to be the gold standard for making an accurate diagnosis. So, you know, I've, I've treated a lot of people who you might say had fibromyalgias Hmm. as opposed to fibromyalgia. And because with fibromyalgia, what I've noticed in terms of presentation is there's a very definite depletion of available energy. And when I work with people, they're not passive in their treatment. You know, let's say that I am working on the quadriceps and I'm just going from the knee to the hip to take some tension out of the quadriceps. So they might be slowly bending their knee and then straightening their leg in a nice slow rhythm and so on and so on, because I want to engage, I want to engage their musculoskeletal system because that's going to give me more information. It's engaging their nervous system 
which gives them more information. Their brain, they have to think about it. And it also gives them some measure of control and attention to the procedure itself. And I think that's really, really good, particularly when you're dealing with people who are afraid to move things because it might hurt. And you give yeah. some of the, so, so there, there's a lot of good reasons to keep them active in the process. And also for fascial work, I, it just works better. There are people who might dispute that, but in my bias, I just find that it works better, more consistently to keep them active. So all that's going on. And with people who have that energy deficiency that they're so run down, they've only got a limited amount of energy. So what I sometimes find is that some people can have an extremely positive reaction, uh, one session, and then the next session have a reaction where I was in bed for two days. I just was just not, not because they were so sore, they couldn't move, but because they had no energy. And in, there seems to me to be something between working the fast twitch flexor muscles versus the the slow twitch endurance muscles. The slow twitch endurance muscle, you know, talking fascia, but muscle, the slow twitch endurance muscles seem to be more fatiguing than when you're working the fast twitch flexor muscles. And, but I've never worked with enough of a population consistently enough to take these anecdotal observations and actually do something controlled and more measurable. But this is what I have seen. This is what I've experienced over 10, 15 years. So people who are more on the fibromyalgia, spinofascial pain syndrome end of the spectrum, usually get fantastic results with. The more serious fibromyalgia end of the spectrum, I want to say it's 50-50. It's could go either way. And I just, I have to titrate the, the delivery to match where they are. So I might have my treatment plan in mind and then they come in and I'm like, whoa, they're not up for this today. I need to figure out something else to do that'll keep us moving forward, but not deplete the energy that they have in their system. Yeah. That was a lot. <laughs> no, um, well, I asked for it. I, I think as I'm listening to you, like maybe I could have thought of the question a little differently, which is- Well, you're, not, you're asking really big, questions. So I just want to give you a thorough answer. Yeah, no, very thorough. I, I don't know too much about these conditions. I was, I'm currently working on a feature about how the way we're approaching long COVID research could change the way that we view and study chronic, little understood conditions like mm -hmm. chronic fatigue syndrome, um, fibromyalgia. And, you know, I'm of course reading that research on those conditions was stymied for a long time because of that thought that it's psychological, but it sounds like, you know, you've been treating these patients for 10 or 15 years and you, you know, even if it's anecdotal, you've been working in a very physical space and you have ideas of what works and doesn't. So it's just interesting to me to see the contrast between some medical researchers not considering this physical or biological when others have all this experience. I would say if you've had a condition for 10 years, Maybe it started out psychological, but after 10 years, it's in your body too, okay? So maybe maybe the psychology isn't working, but let's talk to your body and see if that helps change the psychology and vice versa. Right. I mean, or it could have started out biological and caused a lot of stress and anxiety, especially if you're being dismissed by medicine. Oh yeah. If you're in pain for 10 years, it's going to depress you. It's going to make you angry. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have a daily impact on your emotional state. Of course it is. Yeah. The, the mind and body are not mutually exclusive. 
Yeah, it's all connected. Yeah, I mean, the way you describe your practice is so layered to me, like you are reading the body as a physical thing, but then you're reading and listening to the patient's pain story and what they're telling you, which might be slightly different. And you're having to like recalibrate, it sounds like a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a constant, it's a constant. And and sometimes you meet somebody that just wants to go by the book and you're like, okay, this is great. We can just go by the book and it'll, you know, it's a, it's a pretty reliable formula and the formula will work here, you know? And that's a, that's refreshing, but I love the challenges of, of the mystery people of the things that, that don't make sense. Like, you know, you've got A, B, C, and D and I'm seeing X, Y, and Z. And how do those letters fit together? Where's all the element OB in the middle? Uh, That's such like a capacity for uncertainty and to be curious about that, which I think. And you go slow and you go careful and you test. So it's like, okay, let's, let's do that quadricep thing. Let's get you off the table, put some weight on that leg. What do you feel now? I feel this, I feel that, I feel the other thing, or I don't feel anything. Okay, that's more information. Then I make another decision about what happens next. They get back on the table, we do that, we get up again, we test. If they get up and they say, everything feels great except this one place, okay, then let's get back, let's do another intervention, now let's get up, let's test. Oh, it feels worse? Ooh, what did I miss? Not that they're up and down off the table 12 times in one session, that would be rare, but there's also a regular, let's test what we just did and see what result you got. So not only when you leave, do you feel better? You have some idea what's better. Yeah. Um, and it, it feels like a kind of incredibly scientific as in the scientific method that you are coming up with hypotheses, testing them, seeing what works and what doesn't work and what's left out. I did wonder, is this kind of fascia work still considered or was it considered by mainstream medicine to be alternative still? Do you face that kind of bias? I don't face that kind of bias. I just walk right through it. These days, the buzzword is integrative medicine, right. uh, which I think is a better term uh, than, than alternative or complementary care. It is regarded that way. Uh, but what I find is younger doctors, the, the residents who shadow me are much more open to these modalities um, than the old school, having a, a young uh, resident shadowing me, watching what we do, asking questions in the middle of the session. That's great. And then I start getting referrals from people that I forgot I knew because they're out practicing medicine. And that's great. No, I think it's really interesting that new doctors are open to this and don't think of it as alternative, which is totally a biased term. Because I've been able to, you know, to simplify it, be in the middle of Science Central for so long and develop fluency in the vocabulary of anatomy, which is a language like anything else, it made it easier for me to cut through those kinds of things. Also, the the worst thing, and I see this in a lot of professions that might be deemed with a scarlet A, is they're like, well, excuse me, you're a doctor, but let me tell you what you don't know about that you need to know about. They're going to they're, they're gonna not listen to you before you say your next word. It's like, oh, what's your practice about what kind of patients do you treat? What, what do you, you know, it's like, it's like draw them out, find where the connection is between what they do and what you do. And how can I help you with the problem? Is there, is there a patient you're just tired of seeing that you'd love to help, but you don't know what to do with? Send me that person. I, I, let me see if, if I maybe can uh, help them with their problem, as opposed to trying to feel like you have to educate people for what they didn't get in school, because that sets up Yeah, people lead with that. You know, people want to feel like, oh, I have special knowledge. And maybe you do. But the other person has special knowledge, too. It's just different than your special knowledge. So let's not try to out special knowledge each other. That doesn't build (laughs) that doesn't build bridges that doesn't create friendships. 
Right, right. It it sounds like first you kind of speak that technical language and that gives you a way in. But second, it sounds like you are very conscious of a doctor's uh, territorialness of their expertise. Um, yeah. or Any professional's territorialness of their expertise. It's hard to find, although I know a few doctors who aren't afraid to say three words, I don't know. I've heard that it's okay lot. to say, I don't know. I, I often say it too. I don't know. But hmm, what do you think about this? Let's try this and see. You know, I mean, it's a, I don't know is an okay place. It's People, a great place. It's a place of curiosity. that can It, it is a place of curiosity. It's a place of, of honesty. If I tell you, I don't know. However, you know, or I don't know, but let's find out. You know that I'm being real with you. I'm not BSing you about exactly. it. Exactly. I would trust you more as a client or patient. Thank you. I really, I appreciate that feedback. That's, that's what I'm trying to engender. But I think also being, you know, part of a university hospital system uh, that has multiple hospitals, there's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through to get into a place like that. So there is this attitude of, well, I don't know if what you do is really everything you think it is, but they let you in the door. So you have to know something. I mean, that's kind of, that's, that's, (laughs) you already have the street cred or, but you can kind of create those bridges and new conversations from the inside out, like working from within the system, which is really cool. Yeah. I was, I go back to my early days there. That was, I started there. Yeah. I had my own place in 1999. I closed it in 2012. I started at UPMC just before the recession, just like weeks before the crash of 2008 in October. Great time to start a new venture. Uh, he well, said, maybe a good time to close a private venture. <laughs> uh, a few years later, that's exactly what I did. Because that was where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in that environment because I knew it would challenge me and I knew I would get things that I wouldn't get anywhere else. I did a talk. Um, so any, you know, anytime there was an opportunity to, to do something public through those auspices, I did them and three people showed up, you know, and if you have three people or you have 30 people, if you got the right three people, it doesn't matter. One of them was a nurse who was a case manager for people who had had, let's just say catastrophic accidents, somebody who was hit by a car as a pedestrian people who have got things and basically it's like their job is to find what care they need and it gets authorized period if they say we're good we're good that was one of the was one of those three people in that audience and she had a couple of really difficult patients that she thought my approach could help and you know what one i was able to help the other i wasn't but i was able to help one of them that gets the momentum going and that starts spoking off into other people because she knows people and they know people and the insurance place knows people and so on and so on and so on. So you just keep at it every day, building those connections. And yes, you're going to get the territorial people who are dismissive, but you're going to get the more open-minded people who aren't. And that's yeah. fine. They're, if I got everybody, I, I never, I, I, you know, there are more people I can help uh, than I would have time to see if everybody who needed my help came to me. Now, it sounds like within the kind of body of the hospital, you're this essential connective tissue that might <laughs> but hopefully more people are paying attention to. I, I would love to be that. I would love to be that. That's certainly what that, that's uh, my sweet spot. David, it's been awesome talking to you. Um, maybe I could end by asking, is there any advance in fascia research that you're super excited about? There is more and more knowledge coming out. I was just reading a pre-press publication today about the link between myofascial pain syndromes and sex hormones. 
which seems to shine a very clear light on why women, particularly uh, postmenopausal, seem to have more pain, fibrotic uh, conditions, uh, pain syndromes than men do. Because there is a correlation between the way sex hormones affect the cells that build the collagen in the body and what types of collagen they build. Uh, And there are, and there are variations too, where it can swing more. So the, the way, the way men process that kind of uh, pain scenario and women process that kind of pain scenario are not the same and they can flip flop. Uh, That's as technical as I can be right now, because I just read the paper this morning. No, that's Uh, fascinating. It makes me wonder like if um, menopausal hormone therapy, like if there's a significant difference in how that affects this kind of pain. Oh, it can. The, the, the indicators are that it absolutely can. Can help. Yes. Wow. Dasha, it's part of everything. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much for sharing more of your practice and letting me come on your show. Oh my God, Rachel, this is so much fun. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you for suggesting this. Thanks for listening to Body Talk. Please leave a review wherever fine podcasts are found. Give it five stars. Leave more of a narrative review if you like. It really does make a difference. If you want to make more of a difference, please go to patreon.com backslash bodytalkradio and become a patron of the show. This is David Lasondak, structural integrator, author, fascist specialist, saying, remember, it's all connected and take care of yourself because you're the only you you have. See you next time here on Body Talk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Body Talk. And this week is kind of different. I'm being interviewed. Yes, a new friend of the show, Rachel Gross. She's a science writer. You may have heard her the previous episode talking about her new book, Vagina Obscura. She said, hey, how about if we do this again? But this time I interview you. So we're going to talk about fascia. We're going to talk about practice. We're going to talk about Uh, visceral manipulation and how the reproductive system can play into musculoskeletal and pelvic pain. We're going to talk about interfacing with physicians. We're going to talk about all sorts of things. And uh, I got to say, Rachel, thank you so much for this. I think you're all going to enjoy it. Be sure to drop me a comment at David at Body Talk. Anyway, it's a little bit different for me, and I hope you're all going to enjoy it. As always, you can leave me feedback on social media, DM me. You can send uh, an email to bodytalkdavid at gmail.com. And hey, while you're at it, 
leave a review wherever you get your podcast, give it five stars, write a couple of sentences. It all really makes a difference. And if you want to support the show more, there's always patreon.com backslash body talk radio, but let's get right to it with me on body talk. <laughs> 